Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Coming up today, Mr. Sam Cooper of PlanetF1.com is joining me and we are going to get into some of the juiciest, some of the funnest topics that are currently, I would say, percolating in the world of Formula One. But before we get there, Sam, my friend, how, how are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, not long between last appearances, but I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And obviously, being here in North America and being a North American sports fan, uh, we paid particular attention to the fact that there's some Major League Baseball games happening in London this week has that been creating any buzz at all yeah it has really like I was debating going but it was, I don't know what like the standard like baseball ticket is over there but it was 90 quid here it's is, cheap right yeah it's not, <laughs> it's not like, 90 yeah. quid so I don't know what that is in dollars like 130 dollars somewhere around there so yeah it was like insane prices so didn't get to go unfortunately but yeah there's been a bit of a baseball fever that's awesome. around London at the moment. Very cool. One of the things about baseball over here is the, the regular season's long. Like baseball teams play 162 games a year. So they play 81 games in the stadium seat, 40 to 50,000 people. So there's always tons of ticket inventory. So baseball tickets relative to basketball and even hockey and football are super cheap. But yeah, I understand they're pretty expensive in London. People are excited about it though. It's cool that there's some baseball fever in the city of London. Yeah, definitely. Like, I feel like we've weirdly become like this American sport hotspot. Like obviously we have the NFL comes over here a few times and now like baseball's coming. So yeah, maybe like it's just like a home away from home for American sports in the UK. Definitely. And I, it's not like the flight from, from the East Coast to London is crazy, right? Like it's maybe five or six hours at the very most. Yeah, definitely. I think like I'd imagine like it's probably just as long. I don't know how long it takes to fly east coast to west coast in in the US, but like it's probably that sort of same length. So like it might just feel like an internal flight, really. I, t I tell people this all the time because it's like, oh, you're not going to the Canadian Grand Prix this year. I'm like, it's a five or six hour flight for me to get from Vancouver to Montreal. Like, it's it's only eight and a half hours for me to get to Gatwick or Heathrow. Like, I will go to Silverstone before I go to the Canadian Grand Prix, uh, my friend. Dude, before we get started, I want to ask you this question because I'm feeling some kind of way about the championship. And when I say that, I'm feeling for the first time really since the beginning of the year, a, a sense of renewed opportunity optimism that we're going to see not necessarily yeah maybe better racing but some more competitiveness and some more excitement at the top of the grid especially when it comes to Aston Martin and Ferrari and and Mercedes are are you feeling that at all that based on what we've seen the last couple of races are are you feeling more optimistic about what we might see over the last half of the season yeah definitely like i think when if we go back to the start of the season i think red bull was just like so far ahead of everyone like is it it never seemed likely that anyone was going to catch up. It was sort of like when you play a video game for the first time, you meet like the last boss. It's like, yeah, I'm never going <laughs> to, I'm never going to defeat that person. Like no chance, but we've had a while. We've gone up through the levels. We've got some of those skills and whatever, like all those techniques. So now it's sort of feeling like 
maybe, just maybe, we might be able to compete with Red Bull. And like, I think Mercedes have made great strides. Obviously, Aston Martin started very strong and they've just got a little bit stronger. So yeah, I think finally we're looking at maybe some, some of these upcoming races and the fact that maybe, just maybe, it won't be an absolute cakewalk for Verstappen as it's been for the first eight races we've had so far. And that's exciting for all of us, and it's especially exciting for people in the media. And and I'm typically pretty transparent with our listeners that, look, our numbers were really great to start the season, and after uh, after Red Bull ran off that amazing start, like our numbers cratered, and they've recovered. Like our numbers are up 30% this month versus May, and of course, May there was an extended break. But I think a lot of that is people are re-engaging with the sport, and hopefully you'll continue to see it with people clicking through on your articles and it's Sunday so this show is a little bit more casual but I have to ask because you grew up in the UK when you were a kid were you a Nintendo kid a Mega Drive kid a C64 kid what console were you playing at home when you were facing those terrible bosses oh do you know the first ever console we I've got an older brother so he's three years older so obviously he got all the consoles and I got like the scraps so I remember the first (laughs) one we ever had was like the original Xbox, so like that massive, like huge black box, like took up like half your living room kind of thing. So that was definitely that. And eventually you get on, I've, we've always been like an Xbox family. Like we've, we flirted like the Nintendo Wii and stuff like that, but it's always been like routine Xbox family. So yeah, it was, it was that huge Xbox original that I remember was like the first time when the controller was like, especially when you're a kid, it's like the size of your hand. Like it's totally, huge. Totally, kind of totally. Uh, and for those listening at home, the original Xbox came out in late 2001. Um, and of course, uh, I guess history is history. It was succeeded by the Xbox 360 and the Xbox One. And now it's one of the two dominant gaming consoles out there. But let's get back to the show. So the first story I have lined up for you today is a story that you published on PlanetF1.com. And it is titled, Lance Stroll Warned, F1 is a stopwatch competition with Aston Martin seat questioned and again if i bring up the f or the f1 2023 championship world drivers championship standings right now we've obviously got fernando alonso sitting p3 on 117 points lance stroll sitting p8 on 37 points take us through the genesis for the story and and what the origins of the story were because you do a really good job of referencing a a conversation um i think in a a fairly popular podcast but maybe take us through this article and kind of share some thoughts on where where you think his future may lay yeah i think weird like lance johnson's weird position where he's sort of like one of the most interesting drivers but also one of the least interesting drivers and what i mean by that is i say least interesting because we like all sort of assume he's not going to get like his dad's not going to get rid of him anytime soon that was sort of be a bit crazy which then makes it a bit more interesting because he's like the only driver on the grid whose contract we don't know when it ends we don't know when he signed a new one we don't know if it's like a rolling deal like there's so much mystery just surrounding his his deal and I think now that Aston Martin have got so good and like sort of become one of the major players like they're going to start hopefully fighting for race wins and like they've always said their goal has been championships eventually and like everyone was sort of like yeah good luck with that but now it seems like that might actually <laughs> be true so I think they're gonna hit this crossroads I think a lot of people are predicting it's gonna happen where Lawrence Stroll is gonna have to decide okay do I stick with my son like is my son good enough to get us enough points to win the constructors championship I don't think Lance Stroll is ever gonna win a driver's championship I just think that's unrealistic I think to do that, you've got to be the absolute best of the best. And if you think he's similar age to Max Verstappen, so it's not like Max is going anywhere anytime soon. So, yeah, I think Aston Martin, maybe in the next, maybe not this season, like they're sort of just reacting to their new success. Maybe in the next few years, they'll start to think, is Lance going to be 
quick enough for us to to compete for those constructors. Because like you said, like he's been absolutely destroyed by Alonso so far. Like Lance Charles like languished in like seven P eight whatever it is during a race and like Fernando Alonso's been on the podium six out of eight times. Like the gap between I mean it's gotta be the biggest gap between teammate points like so far this season. Like there's he's absolutely being dominated. So yeah, I think that was just sort of stemmed from where that came like from and like just talk that at the end of the day, F1 is a, is a time business. It's a stopwatch business. It's easy to see who's doing well and who's doing not because after every race, we get a list of 20 drivers and where they ended up. And granted, the car plays a part in that, so it's not fair to compare someone like, I don't know, Yuki Tsunoda to Max Verstappen. That's just unrealistic. But if they're teammates and in the same car, then it's very easy to make that comparison. And Lance Stroll's in that awkward position where he's just getting absolutely destroyed and like it doesn't look like he's going to turn around anytime soon really inside your article you reference a conversation between eddie jordan and david colthard um which i think stemmed from a from a episode of the formula for success podcast if i got that correctly um but eddie jordan asks david colthard this question which i think is probably one of the ones that isn't being broadly discussed enough. And I think it's really smart. He says, you own Aston Martin, obviously referring to Lawrence Stroll. He says, you own Aston Martin and have poured fortunes and fortunes of your own money into it. And there's a huge amount of sponsorship money. What do you say to the sponsors who have come to you and they ask the question, are you sure that Lance can do the job that we need to do to get this team to be a winning constructor's team and and I think I think the thought to that is we all sit back and think well you know Lawrence Stroll is the owner ultimately this is his money it's his project who's he accountable to if he wants his son in that race seat he's going to have his son in that race seat but if if Saudi Aramco or any of these other major sponsors came to him and said look at the end of the day it's clear as day that we're in this because we want to win constructors championships that's why we're pouring millions of dollars into your project and it's clear as day that Lance Stroll isn't contributing to to the project in a meaningful way maybe that exerts some pressure on Lawrence Stroll that maybe he wouldn't feel from other places. And I thought it was very wise, that question, but I also thought it was, I th- thought it was smart that you wove this into this this conversation, this article. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. It's not something I've ever really considered. Like you say, we, we talk about Aston Martin, we talk about Lawrence Stroll being in charge and like, yes, he's the owner, like his name's on the biggest office, whatever, but even he has people he's accountable, like he's got a board, stuff like that. Like we've all seen Succession, you know that CEO doesn't have ultimate power like <laughs> someone's gonna tell him no so yeah there will come a point where the sponsors gonna be like is there a ceiling to aston martin with with lance stroll in it and i think that that's a reasonable question because i think if you look at the other top contenders so like red bull like mercedes and all those i think it's fairly easy to say that aston martin have the worst driver pairing maybe not driver like alonso's probably up there on his own but in terms of the two of them together like they're not going to compete over the course of a season with the likes of a Perez, who even when he's not doing that great, he's still finishing above Lance Stroll. He's doing, he's getting enough points that Red Bull can win that constructor. So yeah, I think that sponsor element was an interesting part of it because like they put so much money into this team and like they they were sort of want some bang for their buck really. So if they know they're not going to go anywhere, it's purely because of their dad's ego really. Like his dad wants to keep his son in. Like they might start going to another team and that that'll be 
absolute worst case scenario for Aston Martin. I, I feel like Lawrence Stroll is willing to commit a not insignificant amount of his own personal fortune to this project. But I think there comes a time that, hey, when the team has the potential to be competitive on the track, you would expect that you could attract sponsors that would help to offset some of your costs. And right now, if you look at the title sponsors, Cognizant, Strategic Partners, Aramco, again, I think any team on the grid would kill to have Aramco as a partner. Um, a couple of their global partners include Pirelli, TikTok, Boss, um, Bombardier, um, Citibank, Prony, Crypto.com, the JCB, obviously the the British uh, construction vehicle manufacturer. Uh, oh, Fly Saudia. They've got some not insignificant sponsors here, and I think a lot of these sponsors probably signed up when the team wasn't as competitive as it was it's now significantly more competitive and i think some of these deals are up for renewal but i think as 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 aston martin starts to engage and start to negotiate sponsorship deals this question is going to come up pretty consistency consistently like well you've got one driver that is sitting p3 in the world drivers championship you've got another that's p8 why can't you have two that are in the top five and then we can go and win constructors championships because the the value to aramco and pirelli and some of these sponsors is when when the team is successful, they gain more exposure. The cars on the TV screen more often during a race. It's in the newspapers more often. It gets picked up across the entire F1 ecosystem. Like that's the benefit to them. But I, I really like that question, which is, hey, at the end of the day, Lance Stroll is costing us the ability to win a constructors championship. I'm either not going to pay you money to be a sponsor, or I'm going to pay you significantly less. So I thought that was I thought that was interesting. But I also like that point that you make about the fact that F1 contracts in general are pretty secretive, right? Like. There, there isn't a collective bargaining agreement. They're not publicly shared. The terms aren't publicly known very often unless a driver or a team chooses to, to share that information. But Lance's in particular is very, very, very secretive. So I thought that was a, a great point. My friend, the next story here, and I want to keep this rolling because I want to be conscious of your time, is you wrote an article on PlanetF1.com speaking to the fact that Daniel Ricardo, and this is going to branch into a separate conversation based on a listener question, but his current role within the team seems to be multifaceted and one of the things that he's been doing is functioning as a representative of Red Bull to Ford in Ford's preparation to coming back to Formula One. Maybe speak a little bit about what his responsibilities have been with respect to getting Ford back into the F1 ecosystem. Yeah, basically he's sort of getting Ford up to speed with F1 because obviously they've had this big history of F1 but they left in 2005 and obviously they were bought by Red Bull so it was sort of a weird coming together down the line. But I think Danny Ricardo's there. Like, his role has been very interesting on this year. Like, it was when we first heard about it, like, it wasn't a role we were very, like, much used to in the world of Formula One. And I think a lot of people were like, okay, well, what's he actually doing? And it's slowly become apparent that he's doing, yes, he's doing all the PR and all the marketing and stuff like that, but he is serving a purpose. So he's, he's back in the sim. And then he's doing things like this where he's going to arguably red bull's biggest most important partner like there's someone they're absolutely gone all in with on their new new powertrains division so ricardo's just basically saying like maybe he's given advice of what he would like as an engine what an f1 driver likes an engine sort of how the sport is these days and sort of because it's and we've had a lot of engine changes alone between now and the last time the ford were in the sport so i think yeah that's just sort of his role he said it was like a consultancy role so maybe it's Less to do with like the actual engineering of the engine, but more sort of the sporting side of 
the sport as, as it were like what an f1 driver wants how an f1 car these days sort of drives and what it needs from an engine really so yeah i thought it i thought it was really interesting that red bull have got him doing all these odd jobs really and he seems to be flourishing in all of them so far <laughs> i totally agree and i was very i would never say skeptical but i was very curious about what red bull would have daniel ricardo do when he made his return after his uh his, I don't want to say his failure, but his uh, unfortunate spell with McLaren. But they've kept him very, very busy. And, and obviously, I think his personality continues to shine. You have a great quote here from Ford Performance Motorsports Global Director Mark Rushbook. And of Daniel Ricciardo, he says, he's a fantastic personality, a lot of energy. He's been really good for us in helping us learn the sport or learn the sport as we return to it. But also interacting with our company, with our management, with our employees. We've had him for a day in Dearborn, Michigan. The local team down there, Australia, spent a lot of time with him for the Australian Grand Prix and we've spent more time with him since then and we'll continue to do so he's a fantastic person individual and a great resource for us and like you said Red Bull's keeping him busy he's doing sim work um, we're going to get to a story in a couple of minutes that's going to speak to the fact that he's been doing a lot of the Pirelli tire testing he's going to be testing the 2024 compounds coming up in short order um, he's been the face of the team when it comes to media responsibilities and probably taking a lot of pressure off of Max Verstappen and Sergio Prez in that sense as well but one of our listener questions here is from Anthony Cullen and he says this specifically to you Daniel Ricardo seems to have made his intentions clear that he wants back in F1 in 2024 what do you think the chances are that he finds a race seat for next year oh I think it's looking like obviously we're quite early in the season still so like we don't know what's going to happen really next year but I think there's not a lot of seats up for grabs this year in particular I think we've got I mean, just look at all the top teams. They seem all pretty well set, like, other than the Hamilton situation, which is sort of a red herring, really. Like, they've all got drivers that are at least contracted till the end of 2024. So you're going to have to start looking down the grid. And, like, that was something that he didn't want to do last year, did he? Like, Haas came calling and he didn't didn't pick up the phone, apparently. So he's he sort of made it clear that he didn't want to go back down, back down the grid. But now that he's spent a year out and there's no big team that's got a space does he start considering going down the grid i think he's gonna have to and like even then he's not a guarantee for a seat there's obviously the big nick devries rumors with the avatari seat that he's not he's not exactly pulling up trees so far i, I personally don't think he might not even last the season he's doing he's not doing that well but i think helmet marco has made it clear and i think this has always sort of been the goal of the avatari team is to sort of prepare drivers for the Red Bull seat and realistically is Daniel Ricciardo ever going to drive a Red Bull again like probably not like when Perez's contract expires in 2020 at the end of 2024 they're either going to go to someone like Yuki Tsunoda or, or another young talent who they think might could do it and that's that's just always been the purpose of the AlphaTauri team or the, and the Toro Rosso before it was just to uh, like get these young drivers ready for F1 and so that when they come into Red Bull they're not entirely new so Again, I don't think that's a seat that's realistic to him. And then you're sort of looking at, like, Alpha. But, again, would they go for him? Like, when they've got someone like Bottas, who sort of plays that Ricardo role already, like the elder statesman role, and he's 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 just been good for the team. He's getting consistent results. And then and then you're back to the Haas. I mean, the Haas won him now. Like, I think the, for, for, uh, the bad thing for Ricardo is you just sort of go down team by team. And, like, you could find a reason where he's not going to get in that team, like, for every single team. Like... Maybe Williams as well, but then again, that's literally the very bottom of the bottom. And if Ricardo a year ago didn't want to go to Haas, like, is he going to want to go to Williams this year? So, I mean, it's a good question. I personally, more as the weeks go on, 
I'm thinking it's less and less likely. I think there's like this whole queue of talent sort of waiting to get in from, we've also got people like Mick Schumacher and then you've got Alex Palau and IndyCar is sort of making eyes towards F1. So yeah, I think it's just very difficult. And personally, if I had to say now, if I had to put a bet on it, I don't think he'd be in a seat come the first race of 2024. To summarize the drivers out of contract at the end of this year, Nico Hulkenberg. Um, of course, it'll be interesting to see what Haas, which is becoming Haas Alfa Romeo or Alfa Romeo Haas. I'll be curious to see what they do with the 35-year-old driver. Lewis Hamilton, of course, is out of contract, but I think we have every reason to expect that there'll be a new deal there. Uh, Zhu at uh, at the current Alfa Romeo team, which will, of course, become uh, presumably Sauber for the next two years. I think some yes, sort of generic. Eric team. <laughs> Yuki Sonoda's out of contract at the end of the year, and so is Logan Sargent. And you make a really great point that it's not as though every single door was slammed in his face at the end of last year, but there were some options that he just wouldn't consider. And, and I remember saying at the time, that's a really risky strategy for him to take that I'm willing to sit out a year in the hopes that there's going to be a better option in 2024 because for every year that you're not in a car, there's somebody else in another championship or in a lower formula that's getting their rips or rep, rips, getting their reps um, and building up their own resume and, and building a case for them to have that seat that I think it's tough for him to be out of the sport. And, you know, I, I, I would not mind talking a little bit more about the DeVries situation because you you spoke a couple of seconds ago about the fact that, hey, maybe he doesn't finish the year. And I think a lot of people went into this year expecting that he was going to run circles around Yuki when, quite frankly, Yuki has been extracting seemingly everything he could out of that car. He has a couple of P10 finishes and what is arguably the worst car on the grid, especially with some of the development we've seen in Grove with the with the Williams car. But what are your thoughts on DeVries and, and how his season concludes? It's, it wouldn't be un-Red Bull-like for them to pull the plug mid-season. We've obviously seen that with Gasly in the past. We've, we've seen that in 2016 when Max got the opportunity to step up from Toro Rosso to Red Bull. But do you think that Nick DeVries' seat is potentially at risk midway through this season? Yeah, personally, I definitely think so. I think he's he's one of two drivers at zero points. Like he's he's not a rookie i mean he is but he's 28 years old so it's not like red bull can sort of say we'll give him a few more years and he might turn good like i say he's one of two drivers on zero points obviously the other one's logan Sargent, who is much younger so williams can sort of say okay we'll give you a bit more time whereas red bull have got nothing invested in devries like he's not a red bull junior driver so there's not that link like he's not on a big contract so there's there's not going to be a huge amount to get rid of him i think it's only a year it might be a year or two but um it's not a big deal anyway, so it's not going to cost a lot of them. And like you said, Red Bull have been quite ruthless. If they think there's a better t- better driver out there who's more likely to get them points or, as I mentioned, more likely to fill that role as sort of preparing himself for a future Red Bull seat, then I think, yeah, they'll de- definitely do it. Like, he's just been so underwhelming. And I, I talked about Alonso and Stroll having the biggest points difference, but I think if you look at Sonoda and De Vries, yes, there's only two points in it, but it's been like... A world apart. Sonoda's been regularly challenging for, for at least getting into the points. He's got P11 three times. Like, he had that harsh penalty in Spain. He could have got more points there. Whereas De Vries has just never looked on it. Even in that race, I can't remember it now, when obviously Gassi crashed into Ocon and like, I think it was Australia. And um, like half the front of the grid got taken out and he still didn't score points. Like, that shows how far down the grid he was. Like, <laughs> half of the people ahead of you not racing anymore. You're still getting the points. So, yeah, I think. It wouldn't be out of Red Bull's character to sort of say, well, this isn't going anywhere. Why waste 
I don't know how many races we got left, 16 or whatever it is, there's a long, long way to go. Like you might as well get a young driver in. And I think Helmut Marko in particular has talked, talked about like people like Liam Lawrence, Liam Lawson, sorry, maybe getting him in, give him a go. So yeah, I think his days do seem very numbered unless he sort of changes it quite dramatic, dramatically quite quickly. Sam, that was going to be my next question, which was if not Daniel Ricciardo in that seat, then, then who? Because you're right that if I'm Red Bull and I've got this B team and I, I hate that concept and I wish I wish it didn't exist. I wish the FIA and Liberty would do something about that. But that aside, they do. And Helmut Marko has recently spoke quite quite uh, brightly about the benefit that it provides to the senior squad. But if I'm putting a driver in that team, it's only because I have a hope that one day they can graduate to, to Red Bull. And if I have Nick DeVries in that car, and it's pretty clear that especially as a 28-year-old, that's not going to happen. There's no value in me keeping him there. That if this is purely a developmental role, and I'm not worried about collecting constructors points, why wouldn't I remove him mid-season and bring in Lawson, who's had a really strong season over in in Japan is there anyone else they would consider or do you think at this point that Lawson would probably be the person they would look at to fill that role in the absence of DeVries yeah he definitely seems the most likely like if I had to have my pick I think I'd try and get Alex Pala like he's obviously such a good talent like he's already won the IndyCar championship yes he's got those ties with McLaren but I don't think that'd be hard to sort of get him out especially if they're offering an F1 seat and he sort of fits the bill of everything they want like He's a good, quick driver. He's he's relatively young. I know he's not super young, but like he's won a world championship. He's clearly good at good at races and good at winning. So, if I had to say an outside bet, I think Lawson looks the most obvious. Just I think the fact that they like parachute DeVries in, I think they need to have sort of a Red Bull Junior driver to sort of make the people in the Junior Academy say that okay, there is a future for me. Because it was a bit weird. They sort of they've got this big academy and they they had a, had an option to put one of them in the seat and they chose not to they chose to go to this driver who's who's with mercedes of all people and sort of get him into the seat so i i think lawson's the logical answer i think if red bull did make a move i think he'd he'd be the one to step up but yeah like i said i'd love to see like alex palo like in that in that seat and sort of see how you do in f1 as we're talking about red bull you published another story a couple of days ago that's titled special plan announced for max verstappen canada race suit after milestone win maybe share with the audience a little bit about what the plan is for the race suit that max had adorned in canada of course that was the race where red bull had won their 100th race in, in team history i was gonna say franchise history but in team history it was max's 41st race victory so it's a pretty memorable piece of a kit what is the plan for his race suit coming out of the canadian grand prix yeah so it's something we've seen like an increasingly frequent recently like is drivers essentially auctioning off their race garments, whatever, for, for charity. I mean, we saw him, um, well, he did it for Monaco, but Leclerc did it for the Emilia Romana region. He sold off pretty much all of his gear from the Monaco race. And yeah, Verstappen and Red Bull have decided to put Verstappen's race suit up for, um, I think it's a spinal cord charity called Wings for Life. So they're going to yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Raise, raise money for that. I think I did that story a few days ago. And I think when I had did it, it was about 28K. So if you've got... And that's in pounds, so that's probably like 50K, maybe a little less, like $40,000. $40, so if you've got that amount kicking around the back of your sofa somewhere, then yeah, you can get yourself hands on a presumably very sweaty race suit from Max Verstappen. <laughs> I, that... I hope it's dry cleaned. I hope yeah. it's dry cleaned. <laughs> or it just stinks with champagne. Like Then you'll know it's actually yeah. his. Like, oh yeah, this is this is his. So yeah, it's it's a cool thing. Like It's obviously one for the, the very wealthy collectors, but it is nice that 
F1 teams are sort of doing something to raise what is a lot of money for, for these charities. I think you write as well that part of the auction winners experience will be they get a trip to Milton Keynes, they get to meet Max Verstappen, mm. and I think there's a, a meal involved as well, but very cool. Just while we're on the topic of F1 merch and F1 memorabilia, I, I think our audience who's predominantly American knows that over here on this side of the Atlantic, sports memorabilia is huge. The industry is huge. And there was a massive bubble during COVID because uh, it seems like the population society was just flushed with cash for a variety of different reasons. But sports memorabilia went crazy. Sports cards, um, game-worn jerseys, shoes, all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of cool, I think, that in North America, um, and it's probably not helpful to people in Europe that have been conditioned to being able to buy F1 merch and memorabilia and parts and gear at relatively low prices, and all of a sudden now they're competing with the 400 million people in Canada and the U.S. for some of that stuff. Um, but is sports memorabilia big in, in the U.K. when it comes to game-worn jerseys and, and maybe a cricket ball? Is there a big industry around that, or is that something that's newer? Um, it's interesting you mention that because I'm currently working on like a feature slash video about um f1 tops cards so you know like the trading cards like they've gone oh yeah they've done yeah, crazy yeah, yeah. like i remember i watched that netflix documentary which i'm forgetting the name of now but it was all about like collectibles and stuff and there was that lewis hamilton card so so i think for it sold for a million so there you go those are the ones those are the very ones I, as i'm as i'm holding up a, a pack of the 2020 tops chrome cards and that lewis hamilton card that you're speaking to by the way that was found in quebec here in canada mm. Yeah, it's just insane. It was like a was it like a twelve year old kid, like life changing yeah, amount. Yeah. But yeah, that's something I'm currently looking into. But yeah, I think in general, I think there's not like as big a bigger thing over here about that really. Like, I'm t I think obviously people have like it's from an F1 point of view, they'll have like race helmets they've managed to get or like a race suit, and like that's something that's quite rare. But I'm thinking of like people have like baseballs all across the house. Like it just yeah. doesn't really happen. Like obviously the, the equivalent will be cricket balls, and I think. I don't know what happens with a cricket ball at the end of the game, but it just sort of disappears. Maybe the players keep it or whatever. <laughs> but, like, there's not a huge culture around it. Like, obviously, people wear, like, the standard shirts out and about. But, like, and there's definitely been a noticeable increase in, like, Formula One merch, like, out just out on the, out on the street recently. But, yeah, generally, I don't think there's, like, a huge audience for it. I know it's definitely, like, bigger than that side of the Atlantic. I, I will socialize this with the universe. I'm just putting it out there. I would very much love to have a race used Formula One helmet. So if anyone <laughs> at a team has some spares kicking around, I will even pay shipping to have it sent to me in Vancouver, <laughs> British Columbia. But no, that, that's very cool. And I, I love that story as well. I think it speaks to the fact that uh, Charles Leclerc recently auctioned off a helmet he wore during the Monaco Grand Prix. And there was a record amount for that. The red and white helmet sold, and this is your article, for 262700 pounds which exceeded the 162,000 euros that was paid for a Senna 1990 F1 season helmet back in 2019 so uh, obviously significant demand for F1 memorabilia and I think it's really good when uh, the teams and the drivers can work together to monetize this in a way um, that can help some really great charities the next story my friend and this is one that I'm particularly top or particularly topic particularly um I would say interested in is you wrote a story on the 22nd of June that is entitled the FIA provide major update on DRS future as deadline for new F1 rules loom. And, you know, if you've been listening to this show with Daly and I for a long time, one of the things that he and I have been talking about going back three or four or five years is at some point DRS will be phased out. 
that DRS itself was a mechanism that was necessary from 2011 onwards, simply because the racing wasn't great. It was difficult to follow. And it was a mechanism that was designed to function as an equalizer between the two cars. So if you're following a car in front of you, you're in a DRS zone, you're within a second, you can open DRS, reduce that drag, and it gives you the opportunity to overtake because being behind a car was always going to put you at a disadvantage because of the dirty air. When we introduced the current rule set, of course, the thought was there's going to be less dirty air. DRS isn't going to be as necessary, but they kept it. And I saw an article a year or two ago that spoke to the fact that in the modern aerodynamic regulations, DRS is no longer an equalizer, but it's a weapon. And this article that you write speaks to the fact that Unfortunately, despite all of the work done by the FIA in Formula One, the vast majority of the overtaking is still only happening because of DRS, and that might influence the decision to retain it or not retain it in the in the forthcoming years. Yeah, definitely. I think we've gone from a place where like DRS was sort of like an added boost, and I think now, we're, unfortunately, we're in this situation where like I think F1 cars too dependent on DRS. Like it's very hard to overtake unless you're under DRS. I mean. Just examples like the DRS trains, like if if they could overtake on other parts of the track, they just wouldn't really exist. But like we're in the situation, like we had it in Canada, obviously with Albon leaving, like a huge DRS train, about ten cars, like caught up behind him, like yeah. And they there's they're sort of in the process of like discussing rule changes, and I think the deadline's early next year for when they're going to do it. But I think for now, it looks like DRS is going to stick around, just because, like I said, I think the, the cars have become so dependent on it that. I think if you got rid of it now, like the, they just wouldn't be able to overtake each other. So, if you're looking at getting rid of DRS, I think you've got to sort of adjust the regulations so that cars start to be less dependent on it. Sort of wean yourself off it, and then and then get rid of it, kind of thing. So yeah, like like you said, it was always supposed to be like not a permanent thing. It was sort of less like a maybe like like you said, just to fix a problem of then and there and there. But it's been like over a decade that we've had it now, and like plenty of drivers. I know Sebastian Vettel was a big critic of it, He's saying he. He regularly didn't like it and the, the cars are just it's not good enough to do overtaking anymore so yeah i think a lot of fans would like to see just overtake overtaking all around the track but i think it's going to be at least a few years away from that and to give teams and designers a chance to like create cars that can overtake each other again without just using DRS. You quote the FIA's single-seater director, Nicholas Tambazi, in this article as saying, in an ideal world, it is conceivable to remove DRS, but in the short term, it will not happen because otherwise overtaking would be very difficult. Uh, we are no longer in the 80s when simulations were not so advanced and the differences between one car and the next were great. With the current level technology of science, removing DRS would be a risk for the sport. Um, he continues on, the new F1 will be defined in June 2024. There will be a significant reduction in aerodynamics dynamic drag the current f1 cars have an invisible parachute behind them on the straight and we want to remove it for environmental consistency by reducing air resistance the cars may have some moving parts and this will help on the straight so i think what he's speaking to there is the potential for uh for what is the correct word active aerodynamic functionality which drs in a sense is but interesting article and it's it's worrying to me that there's still so much dependence on it. And I, I like the fact that your article calls out the fact that, hey, look, the reality is, despite the fact that this was introduced in 2011, despite the fact that we have this new aerodynamic formula and we've done all this work, we're still ultimately 
reliant on it for overtaking in the excitement that is the sport, which is a little bit, a uh, little unfortunate. Um, any other thoughts? Like, what are your personal thoughts? Because you've been watching F1 since you were very, very young. Your your personal thoughts on DRS, like if you had a preference and there was a means to remove it from the sport and introduce overtaking that is more organic, is that something that you would be in favor of? Or do you like the the function of DRS within the sport? I think oh, it's probably, I'm going to sit on the fence or something. I think it's got like its merits, but it's also got its, its negatives really. I think it would be nice, like I'm thinking about battles up front. It would be nice to see like Verstappen and Alonso go head to head without one of them having a massive advantage. Like whoever's following behind is just going to be able to overtake them going into the into the corner, or whatever. So if on that situation, like yeah, you'd love to see see just two two drivers getting the best out of their car. But then I think further down the grid, I think DRS just sort of becomes a bit more like an equalizer. So if for whatever reason, I don't know, like say albums trailing Russell like for PA or whatever, like that sort of gives Albon a chance to sort of boost him up. So like it's got its merits and it's got its negatives. I think personally I'm leaning towards getting rid of it because like I said, like we're getting these tracks where you won't see any, like if you had a ticket for one corner, you'd see like no overtaking. Like you'd have to always be on like the DRS zones. And I think if we can somehow minimize that and go back to a situation where F1 cars could overtake each other sort of on on their own speed, as it were, then I think, yeah, that's that's the best situation. But like I said before, I think it's too early to do that. Like, we're going to have to have some regulation changes where cars become more able to overtake. And, yeah, I think that's the most logical step forward. I think we've spent a lot of time the last 18 months probably talking about the fact that the big change for 26 is going to be the introduction of the entirely new um, power unit. And of course, there's going to be some carryover in terms of displacement and number of cylinders and things like that. But ultimately, there's going to be a largely revamped concept that's going to power these cars. But I think one of the things that we haven't talked enough about is the fact that there will also be a significant reworking of the aerodynamic formula of these cars as well. And I think that's what the single-seater F1 director was speaking to in this article, which is, hey, by the middle of next year, we're hoping to iron out what that is going to look like. So teams are going to be working on two really different parallel projects for 2026, which is, hey, designing a new chassis and getting ready for the new aerodynamic regulations, but also developing a new power unit. And I think that's going to ask an awful lot of the teams because at least when we kind of entered the current formula in 2022, the engines were not only carried over, but the engine regulations were frozen. So teams just had to work on kind of the floors and the aerodynamic features of the car. But yeah, some big changes coming. My friend, the next story here, and this one is being widely published. And it's interesting because we had a story that broke a month or two ago about the fact that there was an American-based company that was interested in investing in the Alpine Formula One team. But according to Front Office Sports and a number of different sources, a New York-based private investment company called Redbird, who already has a chunk of Fenway Sports, several European soccer teams in the XFL, Redbird Capital Partners is reportedly nearing a deal to expand its sports empire even further with a not insignificant investment in the Alpine Formula One team. Have you heard anything about this on, on your side of the Atlantic? Is the story creating any buzz yet? Not a huge amount. No, I think there's just sort of always a wariness like these initial reports. Like, I remember we had the sort of Saudi Arabia bid earlier, early late last year. They reported earlier this year, and everyone sort of took it with a grain of salt. But yeah, I think it's certainly an interesting one. I think this is always going to be the most 
not the easiest, but the most likely way that new companies are going to be able to get onto the grid is, is by sponsoring or buying one of the existing um, existing companies. I think Alpine's are sort of a great shout, really, because they're one of four power unit suppliers, but they're sort of in a bit of an ebb, really. Like, they're sort of not having a great time of it and compared to the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, and even Aston Martin this year, who've, who've leapfrogged them. So I think, yeah, if Alpine can get another injection of money, like... That's just only going to be good news, and like if that sort of gives them what they need to to send themselves back up the grid, then yeah, I think oh, I'm all for it really. Like I think that's a good step for them really. It'd be interesting to see just how far they can take it really. It's an interesting operation that they they're based out of the Enstone factory that's been around for a couple of decades. It's not exactly the newest. It's not the most high tech, but at the same time, they are a works team because they developed their own power unit over in France. And of course they, they merged those efforts with their British efforts to put together their car. Can I ask you a question about the the branding of the team? So of course, Alpine is Renault's works team and Alpine is a sub brand of Renault that produces uh, in very small quantities, um, a, a range of sporty cars or sports cars. To me, it was always it was always very bizarre that Renault would choose to brand its Formula One project after such a small sports car division because on the one hand I get it you and I and I think you would have been aware already but every single person in North America watching Formula One is now aware of this Alpine road car division but despite that none of us could buy one of the cars because they don't sell them over here anyways and truthfully we couldn't also buy a Renault but it's it always seemed very odd to me that Renault was willing to sacrifice the brand equity and the exposure of branding their car Renault and just having a Renault works team and, and labeling it as the Alpine brand. Any sense on why that was and why they would put so much of their promotional investment in the Alpine division? I would guess that it's just like the perfect billboard really, isn't it? Like, so like you said, like so many more people are, are, are familiar with this brand now. And I think it was sort of, Lauren, obviously Lauren Rossi came in. It was sort of felt like a bit like a new era. Like we had... We had Artmar come in as well, so I think that sort of makes sense on that front. But yeah, it just seemed a weird choice. Obviously, the parallel is you can say for AlphaTauri, which is obviously Red Bull's very exclusive uh, clothing line, which I think I've seen one store in my life of actually sells. Great, that's that's a perfect analogy, by the way. It's AlphaTauri. Yeah, yeah but at least with, at least of that one, it's Red Bull's sister team. They're not rebranding the main one. See, so yeah, it was a big call. I think, like, but I think yeah, it's like you said, it's probably just the it's an absolute perfect billboard like so many more people are more familiar with this brand even if it doesn't sell in every market that f1 races to they should probably look into that but um yeah i think that that makes sense but like you said i mean personally i'm a bit disappointed because i love that black and yellow of the renault it's like one of my favorite liveries and like we've just gone to like a gen generic blue and like how there's so many blue cars on the grid like it's sort of i like the black and yellow so i'm disappointed that front but yeah i can I just think it's commercial reasons, really. Like they want to get their name out there, and like that's how they're going to do it. Yeah, I, I guess that's really would be the genesis for the decision. But I, I also, I really enjoyed seeing, like you, the black, yellow, the black, gold Renault cars. I think there was significant brand equity. They won a, a slew of championships as an engine supplier to Red Bull, and they won a couple as a works manufacturer in the 2000s. At the same time, maybe they're trying to flush away some of the negative uh, stigma of, of 
Crashgate and and some of those things as well. And maybe this was a good opportunity to fresh start. And who knows, maybe their ultimate objective is to get the Alpine division, that road car division into other markets. And this is a great way to, to create awareness of the brand because I think for most people, um, they probably would never have heard of it. And that's not a criticism. It's just such a small, obscure brand, even in Europe, I think. Um, my friend, a couple of other stories real quick before we pivot. Uh, this is one that was published in Formula One Uno, but Total Wolf says Mercedes correlation or Mercedes is seeing significant correlation between what's happening on the track with their cars and what they're seeing in the sim. And that's the first time that this has been the case for them in 18 months, because I think one of the biggest struggles they would have is what they were seeing in the sim based on their data and based on the car itself was very different than what was happening on the track. And I think that was creating a huge amount of friction in the development for the car because you can't develop and you can't build new parts and produce upgrades if your data from the sim is different than what's happening on the track and he speaks here and there's a quote here as well um, total wolf says now that the car does on track correlate with what we are measuring in the simulations um it's going to be a significant uh, benefit to us in the development of the car hasn't done that for a year and a half nevertheless you have to keep both feet on the ground alonso in the art and sasta martin is still a threat and max is even stronger up front it's not about third or fourth place for me either it's really a learning curve to get better and then at some point compete for victory. I was talking on the last podcast with Mark, and I don't have the answer for this, but it seemed that for the better part of the last 18 months, there was some sort of wall or some sort of obstacle in the development of this car that was preventing Mercedes from pushing forward, that there was something that was preventing a sudden cascade of upgrades that were going to significantly um, enhance the lap time of this car. And for whatever reason, they seem to have cracked the code recently, and whatever it was that was preventing them from pushing forward and driving the development of the car, it seems to have been solved. And of course, recently we had the new front suspension, we had the new floor, we had the elimination of the zero pods. Any sense from you on what it was? Like, what was the key development that Mercedes, and, and maybe maybe nobody knows, but what do you think was the key development that has suddenly allowed them to break the dam wide open and enjoy the benefits of all these upgrades they've introduced since then? I They haven't said publicly, but I would guess it's something to do with porpoising and sort of like unforeseen wind effects. Like, that's obviously why they came into the 2022 season as they did. Like, all their simulations, all their tests didn't show this weird phenomenon that happens at high speeds in certain certain areas. So I think that just always skewed their data in. I think if you ask Turtle Wolf, like, what was he most pleased about after the Monaco, but the Spain upgrades really, like, I'd guarantee, like, he'd say this, like, the fact that they can now go back to their factory and get data that's going to be relevant to the track. Because like, like you said, like, it's sort of forgotten, like, how important that is, like, if a team makes something and then it goes to a track and it's just wildly different from what they were expecting, like, what do you do with that? Like, do you, where do you go from that? So the fact that they've now got, like, at least, like, they're back to sort of, like, the starting point where, okay, our data matches, that's a good start. We can now put an upgrade on and pretty much know exactly what it's going to do. So, yeah, they haven't really elaborated, elaborated on just exactly what the cause of this miscorrelation was, but... I'd, I'd bet it was something to do with like the air phenomenon around the car that they just didn't predict and they couldn't couldn't recreate in the wind tunnel the same way it appeared out on the track. 
you make a really great point about that miscorrelation in the sense that, hey, we've got a car on the track that's doing X, but we have a car in the sim that's doing Y. And so much of our upgrades that we actually produce in the shop in terms of machining and, and all those kind of pieces, the things that we do to bring it to life, it's pointless doing those things because while that upgrade in the sim would give us a performance boost of Y, on the track, it might actually be a detractor. And now that there's this perfect correlation between the two of them, they can confidently go into the sim and say, let's try X. And if it's successful in the sim, they know that they can produce that part and get a similar reaction on the car on track, which I think is is huge for them. And I think it's been really to Red Bull's benefit that their their development has been so handicapped for so long that I think at this point we should expect some huge strides very quickly. Now that to your point, they've they've kind of correlated the two experiences and they should be able to bring some really great updates really, really quickly. Do you anticipate um, more upgrades coming from Mercedes this year? I know Lewis Hamilton was quoted recently as saying, hey, my preference at some point is that we start focusing on the 24 car. Of course, there's a cost cap that restricts how much money you can spend on the car. My argument was like, look, you know what? If you're in this sudden period where your upgrades are delivering meaningful um, improvements in track time, Keep developing this car because so much of what you learn this year, you can simply carry over to the new chassis that you'll introduce for 2024. Do you think that they're going to continue to work on this car or is there going to be a point where they just have to throw up their hands and say, hey, we've learned as much as we're going to learn with the 2023 chassis. At this point, we need to start investing our time and our energy in the 24 car. Oh, yeah, I think that's a great point you make. The the regulations between this season and next season are largely similar. It's not a huge change, really. So, like, I think Red Bull have talked about this quite a lot. Like, the work you put into this year's car is going to have a benefit on next year's car. So, like, even if you're not explicitly working on your 2024 car, anything that you do now, you can just remember and use next year. So, like, even if they're doing upgrades till I don't know, like, two or three races to go, like, that'd be weird. But, like, at least they're sort of getting knowledge and getting research and getting data. Like, so, yeah, like, I think there's definitely some more in, in the pipeline. Like, they've talked a lot about Silverstone. Like, that's going to be another sort of one where... They bring a, a, a probably their biggest package of the season, which makes sense obviously because like it's like I think it's eight miles down the road from their factory, so it's not going to be hard <laughs> hard to get fresh parts and stuff down there. So yeah, I think I think Total Wolf said there'd be another one before the summer break, so that's that's quite a quick succession of upgrades. If you think we had it in Monaco and then obviously Silverstone and then before the summer break, so yeah, I think realistically, when would they start? I think maybe once Red Bull have mathematically sealed the championship then maybe they'll go okay now's the time to switch over because obviously red bull were doing similar like i think once you get past the summer break then i think a lot of teams already have one eye on 2024 not to say they're just completely writing off 2023 but i think in the back of their mind they're sort of already planning already designing stuff like that so yeah i think we're still sort of in that 2023 phase now i think uh, the only exception to that, I think, is Williams, who sort of openly said that our car's rubbish this year. We're going <laughs> to just forget about it and go next year. <laughs> like, I think they're the only team that have really admitted they're sort of looking at next year already. But I think the rest of them currently, at least, are trying to get the most out of this year's car. And then maybe during that summer break, like or just after it, that's when they'll, they'll start turning their attention to next year. My friend, the last topic that I want to touch on today is an article that was produced in motorsport.com by your long-lost cousin, Mr. Adam Cooper, and it is about the F1 teams potentially preparing to reject blanket-free slick tires for 2024. So, of course, the hope of FIA, the FIA, was that tire blankets, of course, these are the electrically charged blankets that they use to warm preheat uh, the tires before the driver heads on the track, that they were going to be 
banned, eliminated from the sport by 2024. And in doing so, Pirelli would have to produce an entirely new set of tires, a new compound of tires that would enable drivers to confidently leave the pits and get those tires up to temperature quickly. And the general consensus within the paddock so far is that Pirelli hasn't been able to do that. Um, of course, I think I think we're using um, tireless wets right now. And I think the sport had hoped to introduce um, t- or a blanketless uh, inters at some point in the near future. But the drivers and the teams don't seem to be in a hurry to abandon blankets. And there's a really good quote here from Christian Horner. And he says, um, I think we'll reserve judgment until we've done a test. Um, Daniel Ricciardo is going to drive the car at the test and we will get the feedback from that running. And I'm sure Pirelli will make the right decision. I don't think it's what the drivers want. But my fear with these things is that when you think you're going to achieve something simplistically, that would create better racing, that there then will be a whole lot of effort to go into heat to tires very quickly on outlaps and so on that could drive up a lot more cost. Everyone has tire blankets. They do the job. I think that's what we should be looking at is sustainable ways of powering those tire blankets as opposed to removing them entirely. And there's also another really interesting quote here from Alpine's Otmar Snafnauer, who basically says that F1 tire blankets, while not used in other sports championships, are in fact an essence of Formula One and should be preserved. My friend, what was the what was the impetus behind removing them? Was it part of F1's sustainability push or was it a cost piece or maybe both? Yeah, I think it's more to do the environmental concerns, really, because like you said, like there's four of these blankets on every single car, like pumping out really hot heat, obviously. And that's that does generate a lot of heat. And like FIA would have looked at that and said, OK, this is one area that we can hopefully cut down on. But I think the drivers, it's really been the drivers that sort of kicked back against that. I think. I think I think if they went in with an argument that it makes for less good racing, like I think FIA just wouldn't have listened to that. I think they had to sort of lean into the safety aspect. I think a lot of drivers are saying that these tires are too cold, like we're going to skid off. And like I think that's sort of their main argument is for keeping these blankets on, really. And I think I think maybe Christian Horn's right that you don't get rid of them entirely. Instead, you find like sustainable ways to keep them going. Because I think it is a fair point that. You, drivers want to have tires that are responsive as soon as as soon as possible really like the only way to do that especially if you're waiting on a grid or whatever is to have a tire blanket that's just just warming it especially i don't know if we, in some of the colder colder regions that we race in like those tires are going to be completely dead cold by the time you've done your formation lap and come back onto the grid so i think there's they're probably going to find a happy medium between getting rid of them entirely and, and getting rid of and keeping them but i think I think Christian Horner's maybe onto the right track, really, to sort of, okay, how do we do this sustainably? How do we do it? So maybe we use, I don't know, like solar power energy or something like that, or like a renewable source that we can keep these things going, but um, yeah, let's not get rid of them entirely. You you totally stole my thunder there in such a good way. And when I read that that quote from Christian Horner, I got really excited because I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for tire blankets. I mean, they're not expensive. They, they just fundamentally aren't. And if you buy them at scale, as they do in Formula One, it's... It's pennies. It's it's a drop in the bucket relative to the total cost of operating an F1 team. I think it was more about that sustainability play that, hey, here's a tool that the teams use to better prepare a car for its outlap, but it consumes a lot of electricity. Uh, but drivers like them, and you could argue that it is a safety feature, and you could argue that it creates better racing because drivers aren't going to be going out on ice-cold tires, and it might take them five laps to get those tires up to optimal 
operating temperature. But ultimately, I really like that point that you have, which is, hey, why don't we just use sustainably sourced energy for the tire blankets? Why do we not throw a solar array on top of the garages at every circuit? And then we can market and broadcast that, hey, we're using tire warmers, but that's fully renewable energy that's coming off this array of solar panels. Like, I think there's things that they could do. And I, it makes me happy that there's some pushback within the paddock from team principals and drivers alike that we should preserve this because I I liked Otmar's quote as well that, hey, one of the things that makes Formula One Formula One is that they have these cool technologies and these aids and things like that. And it is an essence of Formula One that it's been a part of the paddock since, well, for four or five decades. And I think this story of, of where tire blankets originally came from is really interesting. But I would be deeply disheartened to see them leave. And to me, this is a glimmer of hope that maybe they can keep it and maybe they can find a way. But I love your point about solar power being the mechanism that maybe enables them to do that. My friend, I, I think you hinted a little bit earlier on one of the stories that you're working on right now. Uh, for starters, uh, I think we should wrap this up, but for starters, where can people find you? Where can they check out your work? And what are some of the cool stories that you're working on now, if you can share? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm right for Planet F1, so planetf1.com, you'll see me on there. Um, current cool stories, hopefully interviewing someone who used to work at McLaren during like the Alon late Alonso years on Tuesday, so hopefully he's got some good stories of what he's like. Um, if those haven't seen it, I recently did a trip to Silverstone, there's there's a Porsche Experience Centre next door where basically if you buy a Porsche, they'll let you come around and sort of test drive it, even after you've bought it, and they, ba they basically teach you how to drive it, but... What I was there for is they've also got like this thing called the Human Performance Center. So that's where I don't know if they have any F1 drivers, but they have a lot of like high level motorsport athletes. They come and train. So it was basically putting me through my paces of what it's like to be an F1 <laughs> driver. Awesome. And I think that's so cool. it was a really good day. I think it very much proved that I'm not an F1 driver. Like my fitness isn't going <laughs> near my neck for starters was like killing me afterwards. But yeah, it was a really cool day. And like if you want to read the feature on that, that's on Planet F1. But also, We've got a video of it on our YouTube channel, which is on Track GP. So yeah, I think those are the those are the things I'm currently working on. My friend, I cannot thank you enough. You've been doing this so frequently, us. Like at this point, I, I literally need to make you an official host of the show. I know you're far too busy and we could probably never afford you. But that said, I, I th cannot thank you enough for joining us again. This was awesome. Um, we'll continue to rep your work and sing your praises and make sure that we reference your articles in every single episode that we do. But my friend, thanks so much for joining us again. To everybody listening at home, if you like what we do, if you enjoy the show, if you could give us a rating on Spotify or a rating and a review on Apple. Uh, it would mean the world to both of us. I will be back in a couple of days with Adam Burns from DNF1 Podcast and then I'll be back at the end of the work week, work, end of the week with Mr. Daly. We will do a weekly wrap up and get everyone ready for the Austrian Grand Prix. Until then, bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona mixtape just around the corner did a lot in California can't wait to drop this don't you yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song, and my songs gon' break through like a running back